You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 11th of January. This is Monocle's House View. Today, Nancy Pelosi is just about ready to send articles of impeachment against the US president to the Senate. But what happens next? Plus, France grinds to a halt amid some of the worst strikes since 1968. Can Emmanuel Macron find a way out of the mounting crisis? All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning, I'm Georgina Godwin and welcome to Studio One at Midori House in London and to 2020. It's our first Saturday edition of The House View in the new year. And a warm welcome to my guests who are celebrating that with me. They are Florence Biederman, the London Bureau Chief for AFP, and Charles Hecker from Control Risks. Welcome to you both. Thank you for coming in. Good morning. Thank you. Morning, we're waiting for our buns. I'm told that they'll be delivered to us whilst we're on air. So I'm sort of uh, really just killing time till I can stuff my mouth with <laughs> We're going to need the carbs for the broadcast today. Well, you know, and just before we get into the top story, and obviously we will be looking at the newspapers in a moment, but Florence, you've just pointed out this culture phenomenon that we are all, you know, very serious minded people, or at least would like to be known that way. And yet what is dominating the global conversation? It's the monarchy. Yeah, after Brexit, Mexit. I mean, I've always been surprised since I've been here in this country, since four years of the uh, degree of passion that Brits, who are supposed to be cool-headed, can put like into Brexit and now into Mexic because it really becomes like the new psychodrama in the country. And it is also taken very seriously abroad. Like I was surprised that Le Monde, which is... Oh, the most serious news, one of the most serious French newspapers, had a whole editorial about it and the risk for the monarchy. It's also on the headlines of uh, the Fats in Germany, which is also the same kind of newspaper. So, something that is a story for tabloids is now so popular around the world that even more serious newspapers are really concentrating on it, like to, to ask whether it will have serious consequences. Why do you think we care? I think that what's happening with the royal family at the moment is something that crosses so many different types of issues. Here you have a young married couple starting a family. Here you have a woman who is um, a feminist and thoroughly modern and professional and who came into the royal family from the outside. Um, You have concepts of the role of inherited wealth, the role of privilege, the role of entitlement. You have race in the question. I think this particular um, moment brings together so many different strands that it is genuinely captured um, the world's attention. And, and the other thing is that, yes, everybody likes to look at pictures of the royal family. Everybody likes to fantasize about the royal family. But I think what the rest of the world really likes more than anything else is a good scandal. Um, if, <laughs> if, if the royal family spent all of their time cutting ribbons in front of schools and hospitals, um, it wouldn't be all that interesting. I think that this is a really juicy moment of scandal, and that's what the outside world wants. And that's why 
why I think the crown does so well, because basically what you've got in the crown is a mix between reality television, uh, scandal and the royal family. And it's all true. It can run forever. Got it. And don't forget also the family drama aspect. Like everybody has a family. Everybody has or has not to spend Christmas with the family. <laughs> so I guess everybody can relate to the story somehow. Yeah. Also. yeah. Uh, listen, let's talk to some, talk about something that is genuinely serious. Uh, this is that the news broke yesterday that Nancy Pelosi was preparing to send articles of impeachment against the president to the Senate. Now, it's essentially the next step in the impeachment process. It'll pave the way for a trial. But what form that trial takes is still an open question. Charles, Pelosi's playing quite a tactical game here. Uh, and it's all about... what form the trial takes. Tell us more. That's right. Nancy Pelosi continues to prove herself to be a master tactician in in the politics of Washington and not just the grand macro politics, but some of the machinations and the manipulations and the maneuvering of process in uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate in Congress. And um, what she has done is once the lower house of Congress impeached the president, essentially charged him with obstruction of justice and abuse of power, those charges have to be transferred over to the Senate for the trial. Uh, But Nancy Pelosi, who's a representative, a longstanding servant in the House of Representatives, held on to that process. What she tried to do was a couple of things. Uh, She tried to really turn up the temperature on the White House by creating something that would linger through the election process that we've got, the campaign for president coming up this year. Um, The other thing that, that Mrs. Pelosi wanted to do was pressure some of the senators who were up for re-election in the coming year to push for a fair process in the Senate. Um, that may not happen. And, and really, you can't run out the clock indefinitely on this process. So what she will do is she will turn this over to the Senate, but Democrats in the Senate will push at every turn for a thorough, open Um, an aggressive trial, including the calling of witnesses. Mm, Because, of course, what she said in her letter was, in an impeachment trial, every senator takes an oath to do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. And, and Florence, that is not what Senator Mitch McConnell, who's a Republican and the majority leader, has said that he'll do. I mean, he's basically saying they will cooperate with the White House in every way. Yeah, and that's uh, the difficulty of the whole story, because from the start, I mean, since the Senate has a conservative majority, how are the Democrats going to go over this obstacle as yeah, Nancy Pelosi tries to, but in the end, they, I, I guess they won't have all the voices they need. And it's it's an electoral year. How can you imagine that a party is going to, to shoot at his own president? I mean, uh, in his own camp, it, it makes the, uh, the situation more difficult. What about fairness? I mean, of course, this is how the Democrats look at it, but for the Republicans, Maybe there is no fairness in this. I mean, I don't know. It's just a a bipartisan question in Mm. the end. Although Susan Collins might be a little ray of hope. Now, she's a a Republican. She seems to be open to allowing witnesses in the impeachment trial. There are a few senators who always waver up to the very last minute, but then typically, including Susan (laughs) Collins, take the side 
of the Republican majority. Um, Susan Collins herself is up for re-election um, in the coming year. She's the senator from Maine and under incredible pressure um, on her home turf. And and she has, when it came to Obamacare and it came to other sort of critical issues that were coming down to a knife edge vote, she's wavered, but she usually caves, you might say, um, at the at the very end of the process. And it looks like while she may be, be, be lukewarm on all of this, she will take the side of Mitch McConnell and she will uh, take caucus with the larger group of Republican senators. Um, Mitt Romney for a while was a bit of a wild card and made a very strong public stance to call witnesses um, in this process. Uh, but spoiler alert, really, in, the, in this whole process, no matter how long it lasts and no matter how dramatic it becomes politically, the president will not be convicted. It's a question, really, of just how long it's going to take and how painful the process will be. You know, Charles, I, I, I believe you, and I think you're absolutely right, but I would like to hold out some hope that actually <laughs> looking at Trump's very, very erratic behaviour, certainly recently, uh, his speech about Iran, where he seemed just completely out of it. I wonder if there isn't a case for Republicans turning against him, for there to be some big health crisis, uh, for, for it to fall apart. Well, let's look at this as a small example. So you had Matt Goetz, who is one of the strongest pro-Trump uh, congressmen, supporting a limitation of the president's powers in the War Powers Act. He actually said, you know what, hang on a second, let's let's take a beat here and, and let's not let the president go to war with Iran willy-nilly. And the Republicans trampled him. Um, and they said, no, you do not step out of line when it comes to defending the president uh, and, and you do not break Republican solidarity. Um, so I really don't think that no matter what you see in the president's behavior, whether it's legal or financial or political or military or psychological, um, there is a wall of Republicans who are supporting him and anyone like Matt Goetz who steps out of line. This is a guy who's a star of Fox News commentators. Um, he stepped out of line and they immediately shut him down. But these are not stupid people. They can see that this man is not rational. So is this about <laughs> power at all? Maybe, maybe this man is not as irrational as you said, Georgina. I mean, on Iran, for example, you can see now that he he's trying, I mean, he's cooling down the situation. Like, he, he, he brought it to a crisis level and then after that level of crisis was reached then he was a bit more open to dialogue and discussion so I wouldn't just describe Trump as irrational full stop I mean and why would then the Republicans support him if he was that irrational you can it's, ask the question in another yeah. way or two I mean I, I believe it's because it's it's power at at any price isn't it just the, they need to hold on to that there is this duality of the impeachment process in general and that is it is sort of quasi legal but primarily political. This is not happening in a courthouse and you do not have a judge in a robe at the front of the room. And, 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 and Georgina, you framed this absolutely right about saying, you know, is this about party loyalty or is this about dedication to the Constitution? And, and it's sort of both. And the reason why these processes are so messy and, and ultimately um, bear very, very little fruit is that it's the politics that pollutes them. And while there are serious issues of the conduct of state and the highest state office here, it's all going to boil down to politics. 
Let's move to France as we all shrug our shoulders and roll our eyes. Um, France, as we know, has been brought to a standstill over the past few weeks amidst its longest transport strikes in decades. Hundreds of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets to voice anger over pension reform, including thousands of police officers, rail employees and more than a third of the nation's teachers. Florence, this was part of uh, Macron's election promise, wasn't it? Pension reform. Yeah, reform is uh, was his, his electoral electoral platform actually. Uh, now, w- what is a bit uh, different in in this uh, is that uh, he's going further than what he had uh, announced he would do on the pension reform. So it's very funny because majority of people in France acknowledge they need a reform, they need a reform on pension, but then after that they disagree on how it is being run. And Macron has not been the best of tactician in, in this, I think. So yes, he said he would revamp the, the system, uh, but uh, there is a new element in it that has completely blocked the trade unions and that is at the heart of, of the blockage now, is uh, that he wants to put in the law the fact that everybody will have to work longer till 64 years old if he or she wants a, a full pension. And that is uh, the, the most contentious issue mm. on which no trade union want to budge. And uh, the government doesn't want to budge on this. So that's why it's going on uh, since more than a month. Uh, and what does that mean for uh, professions where you can't work that long? I mean, is this the same across the board, even for dancers, opera singers, people that, that generally stop at kind of 30? Yeah, so the, the reform is so uh, general, you know, that, of course, there will be situation, individual situation that will make it impossible for it to be fair for everyone. So already there are some exceptions that were granted, yes, to the opera dancers, because there is a physical limit to what they can do, to the police, the firemen. I mean, uh, Macron has been, or, Ma- or Philippe, or his prime minister, has been granting some concession to small groups of people, which is also one of the reasons why now everybody says, so if this reform is that good, why did he grant exception for some of the categories? Mm. We also want to to keep our exception. The the, uh, New York Times has a good piece today. It says, at the heart of France's long strikes, a fight between the haves and the have-nots. It says uh, that really uh, this is goes back way back in history. I mean, back to the to the revolution. Really, Florence? Well, that, that would be a, a very simple way to, to put it. I mean, as I said, what, what is really strange is, again, like this French mentality, maybe. I don't know how to describe it. You know you need reform, but when reforms come, then you, you don't really want it. So there, there is this kind of uh, process where uh, things advance with a bit of pressure from from uh, the top and because people finally accept the rationality of it. But I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not 1968. It's not a pre-revolutionary situation. It's just like this move forward with the acknowledgement that she, things should change, but we don't want to change them as quickly because maybe we are a conservative country in the end as the executive would want. Sorry, sharp intake of breath there at the mention of 1968. And it's it's good to be, forgive me for what I'm about to say, it's good to be in a a room with a bunch of people who understand what happened in 1968. Uh, Not that any of us were around. Is it a reference to our age? Uh, Sorry. I think you're fine. I said understood what happened, not witnessed what happened in 1968. But when you talk about the context of what's happening in France and when you try to draw a strand 
perhaps through French history and perhaps through French social history or not, um, what this does is it slots in very comfortably, for better or worse, with what's happening around the world. And the last time we saw that was in 1968. And and, and so um, this haves versus have-nots um, are the underlying drivers of similar protests that we've been seeing around the world. And, and income inequality is absolutely um, a driver of, of what's happening. The issue in France, I think, is that there is a certain demographic reality that is facing the country and that is facing countries all around the world that is going to be very, very difficult to reconcile economically. Um, we have an aging population. We have people who are having to work longer um, to afford to live in a more expensive environment. We have states um, that are increasingly hard-pressed to pay out social benefits. And, and, and so the demographics, the economics, and the politics of all of this really sort of point to uh, an increasing standoff, whether you see it as haves or have-nots or people who are accustomed to a certain level of, of social accommodation and feel that threatened. Um, this is a collision that's happening around the world. Mm. Well, we don't call that social accommodation. You call that the welfare state. <laughs> Being slightly, slightly euphemistic in my expression with the welfare state. Because, and, and, and is no, it no. perhaps speaking too much truth to say that the French have it pretty good, actually? Yeah, I mean, yeah, compare. But, you know, this is what uh, uh, Obama tried to do in the United States to have a better health system. I mean, this is something every democratic country should look for, you know. So they have and have not. Uh, there is also lawyers uh, involved in the strike. Lawyers have been striking uh, because they want to change uh, their system. So it's not only the have and have not. It's I would say it's more like the welfare state, uh, which has being attacked. I mean, this is how uh, the trade union and the left feel it. Mm. Uh, uh, Florence, obviously, there's been huge transport disruption. Uh, and we know that that kind of gets to the heart of everybody who's just trying to struggle to work and make a living. Uh, has there been any kind of loss of public sympathy because of that? There is still uh, a majority of support against the reform, against how, how it is uh, described right now. The support for the strikes is, uh, well, let's say around 50%. So it's difficult to say whether it's over or a bit under. But what you feel when you're in Paris, which I've been for, for a few days at Christmas, there is a kind of tension still because everybody's is uh, has to walk and walk, you know. If you want to go from one point to the other, you know, you have to walk even for hours. So maybe the first days it was kind of nice, etc. But you feel there is this tension. Everybody knows to get to work, you will stand like half of your day. There is this tension, but still it didn't reach the point where uh, everybody would uh, would scream at uh, the strike and would be against. So th there is this precarious situation. Uh, nobody knows how this crisis will end. I mean, uh, the prime minister is supposed today to announce some discussions, concession, whatever. Nobody knows how it can last uh, mm. still for, for weeks. But again, the public support, I mean, let's say support, there, there is no re rebellion against this strike, let's say. People are pretty patient, actually, in French terms, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the French Democratic Confederation of Labour, that's a pretty moderate union, has suggested a potential compromise, but doesn't seem to be following through on that. Yeah, they are ready to, to discuss with the government on ways to balance uh, uh, the budget, uh, the financing of the reform. Uh, but they don't want this, uh, the idea, they still refuse the idea to work till 64. So who will make compromise, who will cede some ground? That's what we'll see in the coming days. Mm. Uh, should we have a look at the newspapers? Uh 
because, uh, well, Le Monde is actually the, the first one that I want to go to uh, because uh, it is carrying the story about Iran admitting that it unintentionally hit the Ukrainian passenger jet. That's on the front page of Le Monde, I think. That's right. When you have people standing outside having a cigarette and holding their mobile phone camera up into the sky and are able to show an aircraft and a missile meeting midair, you really wind up with fairly incontrovertible evidence that there was some sort of accident and that, that the plane did not suffer a technical failure. I mean, you have to wonder on the eve of a missile campaign, um, it, it just can't be uh, a coincidence that an airplane crashed when it was coming out of um, Tehran airspace. And so, yes, Iran has now reversed its initial position and has said that it accidentally shot down um, a Ukrainian international airlines aircraft, killing all 176 people on board. And Ukraine now will be pushing for a full investigation, a full admission of guilt and complete compensation to all Ukrainian citizens and, and to the company and to everybody else who was on board the aircraft. But I mean, Iran has issued a complete mea culpa statement and said that there will be legal proceedings and all the rest of it. Uh, Florence, how do you think it's slightly odd that somebody happened to be out there filming an innocent aeroplane when suddenly it's blown up? Well, it was not in an innocent situation. <laughs> Maybe that's why, you know, I mean, it was just yeah. there after this attack against an American base in Iraq. So, yeah, of course, the whole country is on nerves, I would say. Like, why such a mistake can happen? Yeah, of course, it's difficult to understand. But the situation, the atmosphere, the tension, I mean, that's that's what made it possible, I guess. Mm. Uh, now your buns have come so if you want to do the next one with your mouth full that's okay <laughs> thank you Georgina uh, we're going to cross to the times now now we quite often uh, refer to this columnist uh, not only is he a good friend but he is I think one of the better columnists and uh Stop looking at that. <laughs> Charles, Charles has just uh, t- seen the front page of Weekend, Florence, and I'm oh. struck by this. There are some extremely, um, what should we call them? Uh, powerful. Um, powerful looking topless men on the cover of this. But what we're actually talking you know, the about is... Censorship um, on the media is, really, is alive and well here in the studios of Monocle. I mean, you know, really... <laughs> We can talk about them a little bit later. Uh, But the point is right now, what we want to talk about is somebody who certainly does not look like that. In fact, he gets flabbier by the day, but we're not going to fat shame the uh, Prime Minister. Um, Matthew Paris is who I'm talking about. What a great uh, analyst. Uh, I think he's a a former MP, a former Conservative MP, uh, and and a great, great political writer. Um, He's got a piece in today's time, the, the leading article, and he is talking about the fact that Boris Johnson... Uh, is admirably dull. He says that he's businesslike and unshowy. The remodeled prime minister seems more keen on getting things done than eye-catching initiatives. And it's really very good piece. And he points out, uh, I think absolutely accurately, when you look at uh, Johnson at the dispatch box during PMQs and all the rest of it, he is just ploughing things through. It's not showy. He's not particularly making jokes. He's not scoring points. He is just trying to get things done. That's very unlike his previous image, isn't it, Florence? Yeah, I mean, it's not good for journalists, you know, because we were so happy to follow. You know, after we followed Theresa May in Parliament for years, we were so happy to to have Boris coming and making some jokes. No, I mean, uh, what strikes me is uh, 
Uh, what Macron said about Johnson, by the way, like, don't underestimate the guy. Like, he has been described for years, yes, as this a bit buffoon-like uh, guys. But under this, uh, yeah, surface of jokes, etc., there is an agenda, there is a politics. And if now he realizes that uh, he has to, to, to endorse this new, this new clause, this new attitude, yeah, he's clever enough to do it, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this piece makes the point that because he's been a journalist himself, uh, because he's very aware of what goes into the Kool-Aid, he's not going to drink it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, th- you know, time will tell on this. I mean, leopards may, be, may or may not change their spots. And perhaps the buffoonery and, and, and the messy hair and all of that is really all a gag or some sort of act. But um, what I thought was impressive about the piece is the, the glimpse of how the prime minister conducts cabinet business. Um, you know, he, he tells us that the prime minister wants his ministers to speak quickly, efficiently, to the point to get down to business. He doesn't want them out glad-handing the public. He wants them in their offices, solving problems, um, and and being sort of sharp and to the point, much in contrast to his own persona. Um, I think what what might have happened here is that Boris Johnson, um, particularly after the general election, I mean, he's already been prime minister, but particularly after the general election, has resumed office at a particularly serious time in British politics with Brexit, but his sort of re-election was accompanied also by a major international crisis. Mm. Uh, so it's time to sort of wisen up and, and it's time to act statesmanlike. Bear in mind that this is what everyone thought would happen to President Trump when he assumed office, that, that the public persona <laughs> would fade and that he would grow into the role. And that is that is plainly not happened. Um, so if Boris Johnson is being boring and if he's being businesslike, uh, we'll see how long it holds up. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to Vladimir Putin, uh, because the Times, uh, no, the FT Weekend magazine uh, runs a piece uh, talking about the Putin generation. And of course, these are kids that grew up knowing no other leader in in Russia. And I know, uh, Florence, we've discussed this before. You've actually interviewed Putin yourself. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe the the rest of the Western world doesn't like him uh, very much, but Putin is still popular in his country, not only with the the younger generation. I I don't know the last polls about it, but now there is also uh, economic difficulties in, in Russia, but he... He is still like this popular guy who gave some uh, splendor back to Russia, who is holding the country. So it's no surprise that uh, the younger generation would uh, would be a part of this and uh, see him as a as the right man for the country. Mm, you've also got a big Russia connection, Charles. You were with the Moscow Times for years. That's right. I used to be a journalist in Moscow myself, and I know how difficult it is to pull off stories like this. And so I recommend everybody read it because it is, it's comprehensive, it's got sweep, and it's got incredible granularity. And Henry Foy, who's the Moscow bureau chief of the Financial Times, has you know crisscrossed the nation and interviewed uh, people who have only known a President Putin and no other leader. Um, and and it's, a, it's a fascinating read. And then... It kind of becomes a bit predictable. Um, you have the constituents who say, um, I love President Putin. He's fantastic. I hope he stays in power forever. I've got a great life. I've got a great job. I've got a great home and a car and I go on very nice holidays. So, you know, viva Putin. Uh, and then you've got the other half that really has absolutely no grasp of how politics works and 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 how political institutions are meant to work and the fact that politics needs fresh blood. Um, and President Putin is was appointed on New Year's Eve of the new millennium in 2000 um, and still has until I think it's 2024 to serve out his current term. Um, 
And really, that's a very, very long time in office for anyone. Mm. Um, and, and just the idea of term limits or the idea of turnover, the idea of injection of fresh ideas into the political process is completely lost on part of this Putin generation. Um, and then just the final thing that I'll say is that um, what the article doesn't do, I don't think, is it is interviewing, you know, clearly um, the thousands and thousands and perhaps even more of younger Russians who've just left the country, who have voted with their feet and who are living in London or in New York or in Paris or in Frankfurt or anywhere else around the world because they've given up on Putin generation. They're out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking about fresh blood, I want to have a, a quick look at the end here at Oman where the sultan has died, uh, uh, a successor has been appointed. Now, a really interesting way to appoint a successor. Uh, what can you tell us about that? The envelope, please. <laughs> sultan Qaboos died yesterday at the age of 79 after having been the monarch, uh, the sultan in Oman since 1970, the region's longest serving monarch. He died without an heir. And he left his recommendation for his successor in an envelope. <laughs> um, but that he left that process fairly opaque. And, and we believe, you know, and the media is telling us that, you know, the print and online media are telling us that, that, that the envelope may have been opened. It may not have been opened. In any case, he has uh, appointed a new sultan whose name is uh, Haitam bin Tariq al-Sayed, who comes from the royal family and is currently serving as the Minister of Culture. This is an individual who has fairly wide experience in Omani diplomacy and is judged as a fairly worthy successor. And of course, Florence, that's going to be really in important because looking at the region, Oman is kind of the Switzerland of the region. And what happens next in Iran is going to be very much influenced by the countries around it. Yeah, what, what you need is, is a stable country. And uh, since it's the cousin of the Sultan, I think. Yeah, they're related. Trans transmission. Yeah. yeah. Uh, young blood. I mean, <clears throat> it's still the same blood in the family. But this is kind of uh, reassuring to know that this dynasty can go on because Oman is one of the few countries you never hear about in the news for the good reason that nothing is happening like riots, Islamists, whatever. Uh, and talking about the dynastic uh, throne, if you like, <laughs> it's time for us to conclude this program so we can all go and bury ourselves and get more coverage of Harry and Meghan, which is what I know you're longing to do. Uh, Florence Biederman and Charles Hecker, thank you very much indeed uh, for coming onto the show today. That's all. Our supervising producer was Bren Ryland. Our researcher was Giacomo Harper and our studio manager was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.